Hello, and welcome to the Coral Catalog Podcast. Thanks so much for listening in. I hope that through this podcast, you can find choral repertoire that works for your high school and or middle school choruses. This is episode eight, and I'll be talking to Eric William Barnum about his piece, Dreams of Thee, which is available for SAB. Conductor and composer Eric William Barnum continues to passionately seek new ground in the choral field. Working with choirs of all kinds, his collaborative leitmotif endeavors to provide intensely meaningful experiences for singers and audiences. Barnum is currently the director of choral activities at Drake University in Des Moines, Iowa. He holds a DMA in choral conducting from the University of Washington under the direction of Dr. Jeffrey Bors. His compositional voice and vision continues to gain popularity around the globe with performances from choirs internationally. He composes for choral ensembles of all types, from professional to youth choirs, and has received numerous awards and prestigious grants, such as a Bush Foundation Artist Fellowship and a McKnight Foundation Grant. He has also held residencies with such ensembles as Choral Arts, Contus, The Rose Ensemble, Cantori, Monium Corum, choral vocal artists, as well as many high school and collegiate choirs. I hope you enjoy my conversation today with Eric William Barnum about Dreams of Thee. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Choral Catalog. My name is Matthew Van Dyke, and I am the host. I am so excited today to talk to Eric Barnum about his piece, Dreams of Thee. Thanks, Eric, for joining us today. Matthew, it's my honor and pleasure to be with you. Very excited. Very excited. Excellent. So before we um, talk about dreams of thee, I'm going to take you on a very interesting curveball. Um, so I, I want to ask you just a couple of uh, would you rather questions because I just like to keep the guests really on their toes. Um, <laughs> so um, Eric, would you rather go deep sea diving or bungee jumping? Deep sea diving. And it's because I'm afraid of heights, to be honest. Wait, I'm afraid of falling, not afraid of heights. Excellent. Right. Does that make sense? Yes, ex yeah, totally makes sense. Possible? Yeah. Right. <laughs> All right. right. Maybe, I'm, I'm, maybe I'm afraid of both. But anyway, deep sea diving. Deep sea diving. Uh, Eric, would you rather hear the good news first or the bad news first? Oh, I think the bad news. Yeah. Is that, do you have something to share? No, 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 <laughs> no, I just am very, you know, some no, people I, like to be I, taken up to the clouds before they are, as you say, the fear of falling down oh, yeah. in the bad news. Right. Okay. Last one. Uh, yep. Would yep. you rather be the star player on a terrible sports team or would you rather be riding the bench on a winning one? Oh, probably riding the bench on a winning one. I think. That sort of matches my mo <laughs> i love um, it i mean there's no there's no like i don't know i mean i i get it why people would want to be the star but um you know sports related though i mean i'm a minnesota minnesota guy minnesota sports fan and um i think i'd i'd, I'd give anything to see those sports teams do well so i ride the bench <laughs> <laughs> they're always terrible so give me, i'd ride the bench for any team that's doing well okay. excellent awesome all right <laughs> i appreciate letting me take you down that road i, I like oh, i like like i said just a, just something crazy to start off uh okay let's jump into maybe some musical questions uh who is another composer that you are influenced by 
I think of anybody that I've been inspired by or has, you know, impacted the way that I think about music and the way that I write is Gerald Finzi. Um, he's a British composer from the first half of the 20th century. And I'll be honest, I mean, almost if you just said that about any of the composers, oh, they're a British composer from the, the first half of the 20th century, you know they're going to be awesome. Vaughn Williams, etc. But there's something about Finzi in how he thinks and sets text. And long, long ago, um, I'd sort of committed myself to being a choral composer, working with text implicitly, and I don't really write for much else, you know. So, I, you know, over the years, I've, I, I just think that there's something about how he does it but also how he articulates something that I also gravitate towards, which is longing and transience or the idea of time and memory and stuff like those things. And I, I don't know. I mean, when you hear Finzi, um, there's a sense of a sense of otherness and a little bit with Vaughn Williams. And I think, Maybe some of those things are because of what they experienced in the what, the wars that were mm -hmm. going on at those times. But again, I mean, I, I've listened to enough Finzi over the years to, to be impacted by him and to fully trust what he was doing and how he was doing it and letting it sort of invade my sense of how to do something for how to set text to to music what is what is emphasized what is de-emphasized what is important what is layered i think a lot of composers and i don't want to throw anybody under the bus say that text is the most important part but if you do their music what evidence is there of that when it's just essentially a sonic landscape. Now I've done that many times in my, in my career of where the text takes second place to the sound. And I think in, to be honest, <laughs> uh, our culture craves that quite a bit, that the sound world is what we crave, not the meaning of the, the text or the narrative element of the story, the story of the poem or the story of the text. But again, there are ways to do both. There are ways to bring uh, singers and audiences on a journey. And I think Finzi, um, just his sense of melody and his sense of text setting are something that I have been influenced by quite a bit. But I will mention offhandedly one other one, and that is something I always like to mention, which is my influence of video game composers, particularly to uh, Nobuo Uematsu, who was the, the composer of every Final Fantasy game, uh, starting with the Nintendo and on up. And then he quit, I think at some, I can't remember which one, maybe 10, 11, 12, I don't, I don't remember. But I mean, I'll, I will admit that I played my fair share of Final Fantasy in college and in high school. 
And I don't know, there just was something about what he was doing that was better than, and then when you listen, when you do something like that, there's no way that it doesn't influence you in some way. And then second would be Jeremy Sewell, who has done all of the um, Elder Scrolls uh, games. And the way that these two have influenced me, in, again, in partnership maybe with Finzi, and let's say Von Williams and some of those people, is that there are certain composers that can somehow capture landscape and or scene and atmosphere better than others. So this, there's a, I mean, if you can imagine being able to somehow close your eyes, hear a piece of music and picture the place, that's something that I've been really influenced by. Um, I, I do write a, I would say more than half of my music has natural elements to it. Um, and part of the challenge with that is making the music sound like what the poem is talking about, you know? And so people that write video game music or music for movies, Thomas Newman being one of those people, for instance, there's that they have a certain ability to write music that makes you think and feel what you're seeing, that makes you think and feel, let's say, a mountain scene or something like that, or a mountain town. And you just, it makes you feel like it, it, it emphasizes the, the moment. And so if you could somehow partner those two ideas together where you can say, okay, we have a poem of text. And so we have a melody that's, that's setting the text appropriately and mixing in foundations of um, atmospheric elements from harmonies and rhythms and stuff like that. That's sort of, that is honestly what's influenced me as much as anything, any other types of music and composers. Fantastic. Thank you. I, 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 I love Finzi as well. I, I like Finzi. I feel like Finzi is very daring in what he does um, in the sense of that. It's, it, it's unconventional in some ways. Um, and just as you were talking about composers in that, in that beginning of the 20th century aspect, um, I, 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 I enjoy, I have never sung a Finzi that I haven't loved that I keep coming back to over and over again. Um, and you know, the standard is the, my spirit sang all day, but it, yeah. that, I feel like, you know, that's just the tip of the iceberg in, in, in a lot of scenarios. Um, there's right. so, the so much. Yeah. Tip it's tip of the tip. Of the tip. Of yeah. Yeah. Although it gets challenging really fast. I mean, there are some Finzi, I mean, for, for those of you out there listening to this that want to look into Finzi, I mean, it gets pretty challenging pretty quick. There mm -hmm. are accessible pieces, though, for just traditional SADP choirs. My Spirit Sing All Day is one of those. But even that has some vocal challenges. Definitely. Which are worth, worth pursuing. But it does, I mean, some of his really great stuff is really great and mm -hmm. also very hard. <laughs> and and I, would, I would even recommend look at look at some of his solo voice stuff as well in my, you know, when I was in undergrad, I did his young man's exhortation and it is, it is just drop dead. Amazing. It's, it's beautiful. 
Okay, uh, I got one more question for you, and then we'll talk about Dreams of Thee. Um, what is one piece of choral music that you can't live without? What is your desert island piece of me choral music? Um, hmm. You know, one of them, I think, is another composer from that time period that we're going to probably do at Drake University this year would be the Requiem by Herbert Howells. I, Howells is a composer, maybe that doesn't influence me per se, but as much, be, but I, he's just simply one of the best. Speaking of a, a composer that you do and can't, can't ever do a piece of his and then not go, whoa, that's one, that's him. I mean, every single piece of his that I've ever done has layers and layers of meaning and expression and joy and pain. And this one in particular, his Requiem unaccompanied is, is exactly that. It fulfills all those things and his use of color and disharmony. Um, it just, it's one of the most painful pieces ever. And that to me is a compliment. I, why I think I could never, I, it's just a, the best. But there is one above that, I think. And I think it is now, I think it is my favorite piece. I think it is. It is a piece called Little Tree by Steve Heitzig. I don't think many people know this, maybe they do. I don't know what it is about this piece, but it just simply is one of the most poignantly moving pieces I've ever done. I've done it many, many times now. And it's for choir and harp, but the harp can easily be a piano. And it's by the famous poem, Little Tree, that, you know, many other composers have set, Whitaker being one. But there's something that Heitzig did, I don't know, that just captured the I It's just, you capture the poem perfectly. I, I couldn't imagine it being any better. And the end is just unbelievable. And I, I learned a lesson as a composer and, and as a conductor from this piece. At the very end, um, the, the choir is singing Noel, Noel, Noel over and over again as if echoing the Christmas spirit. And then it transitioned that melody, the bell-like melody that, that the choir is singing Noel, Noel over and over again, then moves to the piano and the choir hums a single pitch. And it is, <laughs> I don't know why, it is like the most meaningful pitch ever sung to me. It, there's something about it when they start, you start singing that and the, the melody moves to the piano like a distant memory. It's exactly what, it captures this, I think. Many of you out there listening have been to, let's say a nursing home where you sing a Christmas song for elderly folks that have little memory left you sing some song that they sang when they were kids and they instantly start weeping 
and remember. That's what this piece is capturing more than any piece that I've ever done. It's capturing that moment that makes you, there's a depth of humanity there. It's not fake, it's, it's real. There's something magical, of course, about Christmas time that gets us to be emotional, but there's something more going on with this piece. I really, really recommend you, you look at this piece. It's called Little Tree by Steve Heitzig, H-E-I-Z-I-G, I think. It's doable for almost any high school. And, you know, maybe you won't get the experience I do every single time, but the more you sort of pack in the feeling, the more it will give, the more it will give. And I think it is my favorite piece. It's a piece that I could live without, but like, I think I, I mean, it's not the same. Having a favorite doesn't mean it's not the most important piece, but so those are just a couple to think about. That's great. I, I actually don't, I don't know that arrangement. Um, so I will, I will definitely explore that. Um, it. Look at yeah. It. Excellent. Okay. Let's pivot to dreams of thee. And now a snippet of dreams of thee by Eric William Barnum performed by the 2007 Taiwan youth choir.
So, uh, so Dreams of Thee is written for SAB, um, and it also has a uh, C instrument to it. Um, so, Eric, when did you write this piece, and who did you write it for? Was it a commission? It was uh, 2005. Just for context, what I was getting my master's degree. I think I was either just finishing or that spring or um, or finishing finished. I can't remember it so long ago. This is 16 years ago. Wow. Uh, so 2005 was when I wrote this piece. And the context for this was that I was studying with David Dickow. Those I hope all everybody out there knows that name if you don't look it up because very uh, important repertoire for all of choir, all especially high school choirs. David Dickow at Minnesota State University. That's where I got my master's. And what I had been doing was going with him up to the Minneapolis St. Paul area to be the assistant conductor of a choir called Manium Corum, which remains in existence. It, it started at that time as the St. Olaf Alumni Choir kind of. Um, and I was, I will always be proud to say that I was the first non-Oli in the choir. For those of you out there that are St. Olaf grads, you know how critical that is because Olis stick together, you know, they don't allow anybody else. And I was this little, little state school boy that broke the boundaries. Sorry, Oli. Sorry, St. Olaf people. I love you. So I was I was there with those folks every Tuesday night. There was a gal that was singing in that in that choir too that was teaching at Woodbury Junior High School in the Minneapolis St. Paul area. So that's I think ninth grade. And at the time uh, I was taking all comers, to be honest. Not that I wouldn't have taken this either way, but I was transitioning from, as a composer, from writing a lot and some for myself to writing nothing but commissions, just because of time. And now, I mean, that is the case. I mean, I don't really, and most composers, at, when they get to a certain time, don't really write just to write anymore. Um, and, and so I took this on as a commission for ninth grade choir. Um, and so it was for a junior high school. Um, and I'll be honest, looking back, I think I, I had no understanding of what that meant. Now, now, now if I were saying, okay, I'm writing an SAB piece, there's a whole bunch of things that I would think that I wasn't thinking then. Like, um, for instance, knowing the marketplace for SAB, trying to make sure that, for me, trying to make sure that, boy, I hope this piece is, can find a way to not be like every other SAB piece out there. There's a lot of, I think, trite SAB music out there What's funny about this piece is that I wasn't thinking that, which I think makes it more honest. 
this piece a, a lot more just I was just trying to write a good piece of music period and maybe that's it that's why this piece has sort of sort of stayed the test of time at the also at the time I was developing this idea that has continued to now which is I don't care too much about norms so the the concept of getting paid a certain amount of money and then writing a piece that fits that wasn't a part of my mo and still isn't a part of my mo so the context for this is it was a commission and there were no sort of hold no holds barred there were any text any length and so i was building this notion that if the poem allowed for it it would be a six and a half minute piece it would be whatever it didn't have to be a two minute piece because it's ninth graders you know it didn't it could include an instrument it could include weird poetry or e good poet anything as long as it was good and so that that's the background and context that it it was um, a friend from a choir that I was assistant conducting wanting a good piece for her junior high program. And I was just taking anything I could to and then wanting to write something good. So, um, you know, when we think about commissioning, commissioning, I feel like is such an enigma sometimes and every composer is different. Um, in how they process it and what their in and what their parameters are and whatnot. So when you received this commission, you know, what were the parameters that you felt like, or at least were were given for this choir? And how did your composition shape into those parameters? Um, very, I think, if I can remember correctly, I try to make it so every time there are the least amount of parameters possible. But I, I think I knew that, um, oh, look, I had been not only singing in choirs for a long time, but um, had also, you know, now had gotten my master's degree, was in the middle of thinking about choirs you know, for a lot, thinking about vocal pedagogy for, you know, now several years. And then also working with a composer that thought about those things. <laughs> so the parameters that I self-implied and still do to this time are, I need to understand the voice down to the point of like, for instance, what vowel is a soprano singing on this particular note, like even things like that, or in the case of, let's say, Dreams of Thee, for instance, baritone and tenor, or baritenor, or, you know, male voice, whoever, they are capable of singing what at what time. And so that my restrictions were, you'll see in this piece, the, the, the vocal lines are quite, I mean, the, the tessituras are small, in particular, the bass tenor section. And my nightmare would be to try to put basses singing like an open vowel on a D or something, you know, like I just, I was thinking, these are the, these are the parameters that I put for this piece. 
there were no parameters of length or even text. Um, there was simply the parameters of um, pedagogy, to be honest. That was it. Be, and, and I don't even think those were mentioned. I think those are just assumed that I would take that into consideration. Um, the parameters were just, can you write a piece for my middle school choir? That was really it. And so I was just imposing my own on top of that. Sure. Great. So I think the, I think that's, does that, is that liberating for you to have those kind of, you know, the, the vocal parameters obviously are, are existent, but is it liberating for you to have that freedom to, to write wherever, what, you know, basically what you feel? It's a double-edged sword. I think, to be honest, um, there's a sense that if anything's possible, anything's possible, which if you can understand what I mean, I, it, that, that opens up the door to even more of potentially the more decisions that you have to make, the more of a straitjacket you can possibly be in. Sure. So, I mean, you know, I've done this enough now over the years that I kind of am okay with risk-taking. Um, and I think when you take away parameters, um, there is a freedom there to, especially when the conduct or the commissioner says you can do literally whatever you want. And, and honestly, when they say that, what they mean is we want you to do something that pushes you. We just don't want another afternoon on a hill. We don't want that again. Okay. We want something. And I'll be honest, over the years, maybe 20 or 30 times now, the commissioner has given me that time and, or that space, that space to say, you know what, anything is possible. Now, the parameters within that, again, you know, text isn't, text isn't a part of that. Uh, what actually is a part of that is what is the choir capable of doing vocally? That's the only parameter in that sense. If it's a high school choir that has, you know, 40, you know, 30 singers in it, I'm not, you can't write, you know, the, the open door doesn't include, you know, eight part. It really doesn't, you know. Um, but what it could do is if you, if you talk to people and they say, well, I've got a, a really awesome soprano section and a terrible, you know, tenor section, which is every choir on earth, I think. I'm just kidding. <laughs> um, it that's the parameter it's not it i mean i'll you know the other things that we think of aren't parameters so if you're out there and thinking about commissioning someone i mean i think that us implying some sort of well i need it to be this poem and this length and blah 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 now that being said composers often you know, conversely will say, you're paying me this amount and I will stop the piece at this time because I get this amount per minute. There are composers that don't do that. I'm being one, meaning the piece is done when the piece is done. If so, I've, 
you know, gotten enough money to write, let's say, a three-minute piece, and it ends up being seven. And the compo- the commissioner has to be okay with that in some sense because that's what came out. That's the piece that happened. And the Dreams of Thee is a perfect example of that. Um, there's no way that I thought, what does this land at? Six, six and a half minutes. I mean, that's not a normal middle school piece. Uh, but that's what needed to happen for some reason to make the narrative work and the scope. And also it pushes the boundary. I think that's the other parameter that I set for myself and that the commissioner, the openness of that you said, the freeing character. When you free yourself to an open landscape of composition, it's there's still boundaries to it. There's still cliff edges that you're not going to go over. Because the other thing that needs to happen is care and concern. So wanting to make a piece that is caring about that particular choir is also very important. Um, so you're not going to write something that you could write something that they might not like right away that will be hard and that they will fall in love with maybe later. But to write something that doesn't make any sense for them is meaningless and sort of mean, <laughs> to be honest. But so many times, let me indict our community. The opposite happens. There's just something that is vacuous written that is just full of nothing but candy. That's it. It's just candy. Um, we've lost this sense of not just ugliness, but that ugly can be beauty, but this sense of storytelling and narrative and that what we really want is a trip to the candy store. I mean, you can take that as far as you want. I'm not, I'm trying to be, um, as innocuous as I can. Sure. And, and that's coming from me being a part of that. I'll be honest. It's so hard to fight against that tendency to say commissioning people. I desperately want to exit this, this world and write something meaningful for you. Something that'll be more than just beauty. And that's it. Because that's what we get a lot, you know. And and I'll be honest, I mean, Dreams of Thee could be, there's plenty of those cliches in there that cause it to be beautiful or what, you know, at the time was sort of in line with whatever, everything else that was going on. But I think what sets it apart is that it starts to press against what was easy, you know, because it, it, there's something else going on in the piece, if you know what I mean. Yeah, yeah. I, I you know, to to your credit, when we have, you know, if you think about a composition or a concert or anything like that, d- dessert is necessary. You know, d- we want sure. we sure. want those things. So otherwise, like you said, it it becomes something that they that they don't attach to. So. I think that the, 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 you know, quote unquote dessert aspect is, is valid. It just, mm-hmm. as you say, that the meal cannot be only dessert. The meal cannot be only candy. So, yeah, yeah. I think it's a testament to me who probably eats too much cake. You know, there's not great benefits to 
<laughs> I'm just kidding. We've There's, we've turned into we've turned into a health. Right, right, right. We should the coral community should go on like the AIP diet or something, you know? <laughs> or we should do nothing but Charles and involve the Atkins diet. <laughs> Charles Ives constantly nothing but meat. <laughs> Wait on that. All right. Sorry about that. No, that's I no I love that I love it I I I appreciate you know that that you know that narrative of thinking in that way you know we we are looking for that in in our concerts we want we want to connect with our audience and if it if it is candy and candy only we're not we're not stretching our audience we have to stretch our students and our in our singers just as much as we do our audience. So I think it's it's very valid, everything that you were saying about all of that. Now, just um, a little parenthesis that I might add as a just a tiny one. The problem with this, though, for me, is that there's a trap here that I think a lot of composers don't even think about this. And what they want is who they are. I want my, you know, I. I just want to make sure that I'm heard, whatever my voice is. Now, for me, I just want people to understand that that's not every composer. There, there's some, I'm one of them. There's a composer I, out there, like me, that doesn't necessarily feel like they have a voice that needs to be heard, but what they want is to they're open to constantly changing, that there's not a recognizable, like, this is me and I wanna make sure that I'm in this piece of music. I don't. And so what that means also though, is there's a danger here for me in that I want to escape sort of this, you know, imposing cosmopolitan aspect to all of choir music where every composer from every country starts to sound all the same. Um, it, it, for a person that wants to escape that, it's almost like a catch-22 of the seeking to be different causes you to not be different at all. Do you know what I mean? So, to, you know, that can be that can be a lesson learned even for the, the conductor out there. If you're just desperately wanting to be different, you might find yourself being meaningless, you know, just doing esoteric stuff that doesn't matter to anyone. I think just be, I think just be solid and um, thoughtful, you know, I think that's it. And I'm just preaching to my own self in that too. Great. I, I love it. I love it. All right. Let's dive a little bit more into dreams of thee. That's okay. Um, so, you know, when I choose my concerts and I think about, uh, you know, where my students are and where I'd like them to go, you know, the pieces reflect that. They're almost like our textbook in that sense. So what do you feel, um, how do you think dreams of the, what concepts do you, do they really, um, what does it teach really well? I think this piece teaches melody really well. And I think it teaches story really well. What do I mean by that? Especially, I mean, everybody understands what melody is, I think, I hope. Um, and melody meaning, I, in graduate school, we talked about something called tonal tension. And melody, it's tonal tension isn't necessarily always about harmonic tension. It's also about 
narrative tension or tension in the way a melody works. It goes away from something and comes back. The tension that is winding up in the melody and then releases at the end of a line. This piece has that sense, I think, in a lot of ways where it winds up the tension and then let it, lets it go, not just harmonically, but also melodically. But also in storytelling, I mean, this is, I think, an example of taking a poem and feeling at the end like something has happened. Like, um, again, enough time happens in the piece and there's sort of that, what, there's no better way to say it than a narrative arc that happens where there's a building up, there's an exposition, there's a, a building up into some sort of climax. And then there is a cathartic release at the end that, that does occur with the response. And, and at the time, I, I mean, I, I've tried very hard not to be formulaic. But there is a sense that I, there is one thing that might be my voice, which is that I can escape the concept of the narrative arc in my music. I mean, it's in every, almost in every single piece. Um, and it's definitely in this one. Um, and, and I think that's what it can learn. It can uh, teach, teach uh, specifically younger kids uh, the feeling of doing something important or bigger. Uh, there's some sort of meat either in terms of meaning or I think it's just meaning. I don't, I don't think this piece is particularly hard to sing, but there's just meat to grab onto that make it feel like there's more going on. And I think part of that is just the narrative arc the the way that the piano interacts with the choir the way the piano builds up what the choir is doing and the way that whatever instrument that you're choosing to do interacts with the choir makes it sound like wow we're a ninth grade choir doing something really important on this piece this this piece means something I might not know what it means, but it means something. I know it does. And, and you know, I'll be honest, it's the same. It's sort of a mini version of maybe a, a, you know, a more mature choir doing a mass or something like that, where they're doing something that's just, it's just a little bit more important than just an octavo. This is a version of that maybe for a ninth or a 10th grade choir. And I think consolidating from SATB to SAB also makes it more successful. And what they learn is success, <laughs> to be honest, if we were to pick one more thing, is that they learn that that you don't a good piece doesn't have to always include every part under the sun. And and that there's meat to be had in simplicity of parts. You know, we've lost that. I mean, one a composer of worth that a lot of people should think about is, let's say, Buxtehude, for instance. He wrote a lot of SAB, a lot of it, and some of it's really good. And we just don't do it. We don't remember these people and access them as um, 
as possibilities. But anyway, so what they learn is, I think, melody, um, meaning, and the ability to think out, you know, bigger thoughts than just, oh, that piece, we sang it, and it was fun. Yeah, I, I agree wholeheartedly. This, you know, in the, throughout these episodes of the podcast, I, I'm, whenever the piece is SAB, I'm, I'm looking for the depth. I'm looking for the maturity because our, the students, regardless, and, and I say students as a, as a general term, you know, it could be youth, youth choir, it could be, you know, singers deserve to feel important regardless of their musical abilities at the time they deserve to they deserve to feel like there is significance in what they are singing as opposed to uh we're doing this piece and they can because singers are not stupid they can see they it there's a transparency of this piece is easy maybe it's because we can't do other things you know that the, the road leads in many directions so I, you know, and that's particularly and on a personal note that that's the reason why I think this piece is valid, because when I did this, you know, in my first job, I had a ninth grade chorus and this was the piece that I went to because I had, uh, I think it was 11 guys and three of them could not match pitch. So I, I went to this one because it felt meaningful. It felt like something that was different than maybe what they're used to singing. And, and so there's validity in, in, in so much of, of, of what you said. And, and I wanted, I wanted to just echo that. So um, let me kind of move on and see, you know, when we teach this to our ensembles, whatever they might be. And I say this every episode that every ensemble is different. Every ensemble, every singer has a different ability level and every uh, preconceived notion and, and et cetera, et cetera. But what is, where do you start with this piece? What's the first thing that you do so that students attach to it? Sure. I think, I mean, I would do, as a conductor, I would do what I often do, which is uh, I gravitate towards making things efficient. So I, I would do things that are repeating in character or that are repeating in many ways. And that is right away. In this piece, I would just have everybody sing the opening line together, everyone. Um, it returns a number of times, um, and it returns in a variety of ways a number of times. And if you can sum, if everybody learns the solo line, by the way, uh, or soli, however you want to do it, but that also, when you do that, by the way, it's also efficient because then you don't have to like teach all these wannabe soprano soloists. They already know it. Um, and then you could get out of drama in your choir by assigning several to it instead of just, okay. Anyway, <laughs> I'm all reducing to, drama. You also um, don't have to think about, uh, you know, if you are doing a solo or you're doing auditions for this, they all know it already yeah, you don't have to say go home That's and learn it you've right. you've knocked your the efficiency is exactly what i would agree wholeheartedly yeah. you know you're, so, you're and it comes like i said it comes back so i mean when it comes back it, there i mean halfway through the piece it, it returns uh back to a, a sort of a, a a harmonic version of the the main 
the main line and like even the bases have a ver like a, the sort of a version of it. So even if they're terrible readers, they will instinctively gravitate towards the right notes. In many ways, this is, uh, I, I hope, written in such a way that, I don't know, it's almost like, uh, what do you call that when you, when your pop singers do it and they're off key and then it makes them- Auto-tune? Auto-tune. There's some pieces, that choral pieces out there that sort of make you do that, that, that instinctively gr make you gravitate towards the right pitches. And, and in some cases, I think this piece does that because of just the repeating character over and over again, certain things kind of are around. It doesn't modulate very much. Um, there are, there's definitely strength in the tonic and dominant everywhere. And, and so it just keeps coming back, even though it does, it sounds a lot harder than it is. It, it's not maneuvering around very much. So again, if you're teaching this piece, I would just locate the two places that are just repeating. And then one, there is a B section. So like just picking out the opening A section, everybody learns the opening line. Everybody does it together. Everybody learns it all the way through the first three pages. I would skip the next couple pages and then start maybe, you know, on, you know, the middle of the page when the sort of the B section hits and then everybody learns the soprano line. And then they, you can sort of filter almost like fall, coming off of that. So everybody learns a certain line and then finds their own afterwards. That's a, generally the way I do some things like this when you want to do something quick or you want everybody to get context. Um, it's just everybody sings some part. The other thing is, folks, I think, and, and I want to reiterate this for myself too, is that, you know, some of these basses or, or vice versa, I mean, you could have sopranos and altos singing the bass line. This is good for them to do, even if they don't know what they're doing even if they don't know what they're doing. This is what um, I'm known for uh, is sort of talking about anti-fragility a lot. This is an example of how to make your choir anti-fragile is to put them in this circumstance where a bass who might know very little has to sing with the sopranos, is looking at the piece, doesn't know what they're doing but it's happening in real time that will help. There's so many good things happening in that moment. So again, it's, a, it's efficient and it's useful, but it, and it will, it'll help you learn the piece quicker. And I think it will also help you understand the piece more because everybody's sort of gravitating communally to what's important. Yeah, I think also if I can add just one more thing that this is a great opportunity to teach form. Because if you're going to have a repeated aspect come, you know, start in one way and vary and, and, and have a slight variation of some kind, that's a great way to teach, you know, A, A prime, A double prime, you know, this is very different B. So 
I mean, I, to me and my students, that helps them learn faster because mm -hmm. then they say it's like it, but it's not, you know, it's, mm -hmm. um, so I'm going to look for the not because I know it's not exactly the same thing. Um, and when I know B, or if I, you know, if I was that baritone that was looking at the music and you told me this is B, it is not A, that my ear doesn't, my eye and my ear doesn't need to know anything else besides it's not what we just did. Something is different and I'm going to figure it out. So it encourages that. And I think in that anti-fragility, as you were talking about, that it requires something of them to find what is different. Um, so I think that, that this piece does that very well as well, that there is enough um, repetition to be successful and enough variation to encourage, um, what's the word I'm looking for? A kind of exploration or um, um, being willing to try something new. Yeah. Um, great, awesome. In the times that you have done this piece, maybe with, ensembles or um, over the time over the times that you've gotten feedback back from directors, what are some kind of teaching tips and tricks that you've picked up over the years that have made this piece more efficient in the learning process or, or made this piece connect with the students? Mm. Well, oh, that's a good question. I'm not even sure I know how to answer that. What if I what comes to mind is a couple things. One, I don't think you might be asking this, but one of the things is choosing, I think the right, I mean, this isn't exactly answering, but choosing the right instrument to partner with the choir does add or subtract to this piece. It's written for C instrument. There's some out there, okay? Um, I'll just say this to, I wrote this specifically for oboe to that. That's the plan was that, but I also know that oboe is not, you know, one, everybody's cup of tea, but also if you don't have a good oboist, it could literally ruin the piece. It's true. Violin has been used most of the time, I think for this, but probably the best instrument I've ever heard do this was soprano sax. Mm. Um, it's just, so I, I just want to open this up to those. You could choose an instrument that really, the instrument can really play a role in the success of this piece. The instrument has a lot to do with the drama of this piece. And also if the instrumentalist is really good, it will instinctively make the choir better or not instinctively it'll automatically make the choir better and the choir will want to sing it better if the instrumentalist is good so here's what i recommend i recommend don't just get a student to play it get someone else that unless you have an amazing student great fine but there are so many this could be thought of badly, but there are a lot of recordings and, and times out there where conductors use this as an opportunity to say, oh, I have a ninth grader that is plays something. It, and then it's an opportunity, yeah. 
and then it doesn't happen good and the choir it's like letting air out of a tire that's what it is now the same thing happens with the solo in here the solo starts it off and and leads it out now if you have a very i've heard a lot of recordings again with timid the the soprano line is quite low you know it's quite low so it, it might not be good for your quote best singer whoever that is to just do it alone so to get three to do it and to agree on it makes this piece go better so you know this is in a way answering your question is accessing not just again i think the way that educators think is is a great which is more opportunity but there is a case where sometimes the opportunity doesn't meet doesn't sort of meet the end goal that we want so to if you had the possibility of accessing an, another faculty on your at your high school or whatever to play and then to get several singers and and for me if i were a part of a smaller uh, program i might get maybe a couple sopranos and an alto just to balance each other out to sing what's on the page i think in many ways and and also sorry to say it but the pianist has to be brave and good and and i think if those three things happen the song sort of plays itself out to be to be what it needs to be i know that there you asked about teaching tips and tricks but i think those are the tips that i would give is to find those ancillary parts are what makes this piece go the best is a pianist that can understand drama a an instrumentalist that can take the lead and play outside the bounds you know there's some there's some moments in here that require a lot of drama from the the, let's say a violin player or something and when they play really well i think you've heard it maybe before when the violinist is good wow this piece can really shine big big time so it's really about those those things that i'd recommend to anybody doing this out there is is finding those the rest of it i think sort of takes care of itself yeah i'm glad that you i'm glad that you just you touched on you know, those things, I, I, I wouldn't have thought that you were going to go in that direction, but that makes this piece. It does. And, you know, for those listeners out there that you have made, you know, we, we call sometimes on our band colleagues for, as you, as you said, Eric, you know, the, you know, do you have a good violinist or do you have a good oboe player and whatnot? And, and we, and we want to give those opportunities, but I, I've never stopped to consider that, the quality of the instrumentalist has a direct effect on the singers. I've, I've never stopped to think about that. And, and in this piece where some, um, there are some parts that are sparse, I think in, uh, and, and it's, and I think that it's meant to be that way. It's meant to feel, you know, in the beginning, like you're alone and it's, and then as you go through that, you start to, you start to find, 
you know, in that I think, you know, I'm kind of just going really, really quickly right through to think that the beginning, that solo part is so exposed and so introspective and whatnot that it, that it should be sparse and whatnot. And so adding those extra people and having that instrumentalist be that extra element of support for those students is better than throwing a student is better than giving the opportunity to a band or an orchestra student where you your our main th concern is to build up our our students in front of us um and so i i you know and as it goes through that the text tells us it, that it requires more there's more characters in the in the and so it gets denser and whatnot so I, i'm just really glad that you touched on that 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 is that's a phenomenal um avenue that we that you took and i, I appreciate that matthew i want to add one more thing sure um, this is a big tip. Composer or conductors who are doing this piece probably should read the poem before they start doing this piece. Um, a little behind the scenes is that when this piece was written and I chose this poem, uh, this they almost didn't allow this poem or this piece to be set because of the poem. Um, and I, I think it went in front of the boosters and there were some boosters that had an issue with the poem. So if you're curious about why, um, then, I mean, all you need to do is read the poem and, and then maybe look up a little about uh, sort of what this could have meant during the time period. And then you have to sort of navigate the ability to talk about romantic love and that sort of situation in a way that makes sense for the ninth grader or the 10th grader. And what's good about this is that all of these kids in their own way are dealing with some of these things. And there is open doors to, to connecting with this text for that age although it's intensely more serious than meets the eye. I mean, this is Shelley. I mean, it's one of the, the best poets of all time. And it's not a game and it's deep, but it can go in a way that could get, it could go in a way that could cause, let's say the boosters of Woodbury, <laughs> Woodbury Junior High an issue. And I'll be honest, at the time, I wasn't thinking about the implications. When I chose this poem, I was thinking, to be honest, in a very naive way that was sort of taking the text at face value. But when the text talks about dying, fainting, and failing, there are other implications there to the time period that we don't attach those things to. And it's just possible that you need to be able to really steer the choir towards what you need them to get out of this piece and out of the text. I mean, you could go any number of ways. And if you have a, a diligent student that cares about the text, which I'm sure many of you do out there, that they'll look up the poem themselves and start to think about it and read it. And I think you just need to steer them the right direction. Um, that's just a something to consider when you do this piece. Excellent, excellent. So this is the last question I have for you about Dreams of Thee. Um, what is, and it's another, you know, 
definitive question, but what is your favorite thing about this piece? You know, that's a good question because I, I think back on this and this was at a time in my life of sort of not, I, well, I still don't know what I'm doing really, but this, in it feels like I was didn't know what I was doing very much back then. When I look back at this piece after we talked about doing, talking about this piece and looking at it and seeing, <laughs> just remembering sort of the way I used to do stuff so long ago. And honestly, what I'm, again, proud of is what we've talked about, which is, would I change stuff? I don't know, maybe, but it, there's no way out of the fact that it has meaning in it. And I think if I were to pick something, it would be something that I'm also sort of known for um, in some avenues, which is pacing. If I were to pick something I'm most proud of, it's pacing in this piece. It, and what I mean by that is it, it isn't just the traditional narrative arc. A really, what's the difference between a book that has a normal narrative arc and a good book? that has a narrative arc. It, I think, has to do with not only character development, but pacing and how you deal with the character or the narrative arc. So there, in this poem, for instance, there's really good character and there's good character development in, in the poem, good storytelling in the poem, but to unveil that in a way that um, sort of um, brings a two-dimensional into three-dimensional and the black and white into color and does it in such a way that exacerbates um, the feeling of arc, the feeling of climax, the feeling of catharsis, the feeling of exposition. That I think that's what I was toying around with back then. And I think this piece has that. It doesn't, it's long, but it doesn't feel long. I mean, it. it's it feels enough and maybe that that's something I'm proud of and what I like about this piece is that it's not a rare feeling but it I don't know if you all know what I mean where you end a piece and it just feels enough it just feels like it's that's it it's good there's nothing it's enough so I think that has this that that quality to to the piece that I enjoy great phenomenal well, as we wrap up for today, I just have two more questions and they're, they're really about you and the, and the future. So, you know, what exciting projects are on the horizon for you? You know, every year I, I'm trying to jump drum up work. I mean, we're all living in a, I guess I was going to say post COVID, which we're not <laughs> <It's> still <laughs> Post is, I guess we thought never, we were, we're and never, now we're not. <laughs> we're never going to be living in a post-COVID world. No, but I think many composers, I mean, the good news for me is that my main project is Drake University and being the, the director of choral activities there. And I, it's just an, I think Drake is an exciting place to be. Um, incidentally, we, we try to uh, draw people from all over the United States. So if you're interested, look up Drake University. It's, I think, a very exciting place to be right now. Um, 
but as far as pro composing goes, I mean, I've got some things on tap every year. I try to to work with a number of a number of choirs of any any type. I don't really um, restrict anything. And and right now on the plate are a university called Heidelberg University and um, two three high schools. A couple of them are local and. Uh, one international choir and another uh, community choir in the Twin Cities area. But I'll be honest, I mean, I, the way that, the way that it's looking now, I mean, I'm, tr I'm just also trying to drum up work. So if anybody out there is interested in, in collaborating on something new, I mean, give me a, give me a look, I will do what I've always done, which is try to write something meaningful for your ensemble your specific one so I'm, I'm excited for what i'm doing but also thinking about far off yeah so that leads me literally into my last question how can people get in touch with you how can they find out more about you and other compositions that you've done and commissions in the future sure lots and lots of ways um the main way is you could just go to ericwilliambarnum.com i mean that can be the gateway for everything else including including Drake University. If you go to ericwilliambarnum.com, it has um, not only everything I do is conducting, um, all my contact information, but it, but it also includes a listing of every piece. I think we're up to 150 now, so, or over 150. So it has a listing of every piece, including every, all the publishers, um, where to get them, some links to, um, uh, perusal scores and they're all separated as well into not only difficulty levels but there are some also what I've called annotated things like so every piece about water if you want a certain piece about water there's a listing of here's the water pieces or here's the light and night pieces or whatever so ericwilliambarnum.com is the main way um, and those obviously link to all the social media stuff that I'm not good at at all, but, <laughs> uh, and, and you can email me, there's links to emails on through that website. So I just would guide you, guide you there. Great. Wonderful. Well, Eric, I just want to take an opportunity and thank you for talking to me today and, and letting us peer into the mind of, of the composer and, and to hear more about dreams of thee. you know, when I did this as a, a, a beginning teacher, it, it was, it really, it really sat with me well, and it has kind of resonated with me for a long time. And, um, you know, and, and I think it has for a lot of our listeners too, you know, when we, when we ask each other on the Facebook forums and whatnot, you know, I need this, I need this kind of thing, I need this kind of thing that dreams of the tends to pop up so many times, because I think it's had a, a lasting impact on not only the conductor, but their students. Um, you know, and maybe even down the line, you know, when that student becomes the conductor, I think it, I think it will resonate as well. So I want to take a, just an opportunity to thank you for, uh, you know, writing it and taking time to talk to me today about it. Matthew, I'm so grateful to be on, and I'll say this publicly. I mean, I am humbled by everyone that does any piece of mine. You have a million choices to do these days, a million directions you can go. 
for anybody that's purchased or performed any of my stuff. I'm humbled and grateful. Thank you. Thanks so much for listening to the Coral Catalog, and I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Eric William Barnum. Please make an effort to explore more of Dreams of Thee and Eric's other compositions to see if any can fit into your programs or curriculums. While you're here, take a second to hit that subscribe button and follow the Coral Catalog so you don't miss out on any future episodes. Let me know what you thought of the show too by writing a review. And most importantly, share this resource with other choral directors and choral lovers. We work better when we work together. Again, thanks so much for listening and I'll see you on the next episode of the Choral Catalog.